Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share, that American ideal friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan. So here we are, uh, Tuesday, June 8th, 7.48 p.m., a balmy 81 degrees. Uh, I don't know about you, I was stuck to my chair, like literally stuck to my chair all, all day today, but uh, looking forward to, uh, to chatting. What are, we, what are we talking about this week? 81 degrees has to be the coolest it's been in four days. So this is, you know, we'll take this at this point. Uh, Quiet-ish week or quieter week, at least uh, in national politics. But Ricky, we have to start with the the big news of the week. You're, you're engaged. Oh man! <laughs> so I am. So I am. Yeah, it was uh, it was a big weekend for Ricky for the podcast. We are we are very excited to uh, to welcome Ricky's now fiance in, into the extended family officially. So. Um, Excited for both of you. Congratulations. Uh, sure. really, really happy for you. You know, she was cre- creative director. She she uh, made the first logo, well, made the first and only logo. Um, so she's been a, a tacit fan, actually. I can say that she's not going to listen to this. So Right, right. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so technically, I guess she was already kind of invested. Now, now for sure, like if she's got like a piece of the podcast for sure now. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, your your half has been diluted. <laughs> yeah. uh, but we are we are really excited um, for both you. of you. So that was that was a fun. That was the big news of, of the weekend. But uh, moving on to more nationally relevant news, uh, we got a few things to talk about this week. Uh, we're going to start by doing something we um, did a few episodes ago. So our previous episode, which released about ten days ago, was uh, the Israel Palestine episode and. It was a heavy episode for anybody that listened, and we got some feedback from people that saying that it, it was, uh, you know, a challenging listen at times. Um, and we, throughout that episode, we we asked for feedback, and we feel really fortunate that people took time uh, to give us some really thoughtful feedback. So we're going to start the episode by talking about that in a minute. Um, other things the state of bipartisanship in Washington. And we'll look at that through a couple of figures, you know, in particular, Joe, my guy, Joe Manchin, uh, but also look at it through like infrastructure talks and uh, the filibuster and voting rights and how all of those things are kind of intertwined in Washington right now. And finally, we'll turn back to the sports world uh, for our final segment and discuss Naomi Osaka, who is uh, the number two ranked women's tennis player in the world. And uh, we'll, we'll get into why we're talking about her at the end. Um, but before we do all that, as always, we want to remind you that the podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsmen at Cannon Hill Woodworking, uh, building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. Cannon with two ends. You can check them out on Instagram or visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. Uh, Ricky, at the engagement party this week, there was a lot of chatter about the sponsor. There was. There was. People are... They're ready to get tables. 
I, I honestly, I, I think they are. And there was some discussion for people out there that are either you know, moving or redecorating or just looking to upgrade some pieces in their house. Uh, there were, you know, it, it was fun for me to be like, oh, people are not only listening, but know that we have a sponsor and know that it's like Cannon Hill Wood. And if I need to go get a, a, a custom, you know, handmade, high end, like hand crafted <laughs> table or desk, I know where to go. So that was fun. That was fun. Cool. All right, let's hop into Cannon Hill here in this too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, still need people to go buy things. Let, yeah. Tell them, tell them, Brennan Ricky sent you. That's what you know. All right, let's let's hop into it. So, I uh, like we said, we we had asked for feedback from our last episode, and we are to be you know clear, we are always open and hopeful that you know pe- when people listen, uh, they give us feedback. And Ricky, oftentimes it happens, um, kind of. Or organically or colloquially, right? We'll have conversations with people who say, hey, listen to that last episode. This is what I thought. You got this right. You could do better here. These are my thoughts, which is, it's been a blast. And one of the, you know, hidden benefits for me of doing the podcast. Uh, but we were more explicit in asking for feedback just because we knew that we weren't going to get everything right with the Israel-Palestine episode. And uh, we had a few people reach out, whether it was on Instagram DMs or um, reached out to us via email and put together some extended thoughts on, on the topic. So we want to talk about both those, but also just want to say we appreciate it. Uh, you know, we appreciate everyone who listens, but to take the time to listen and, and consider and provide us some feedback and really um, nuanced, thoughtful feedback and maybe and linked us to some articles and uh, really appreciate it, honestly. And there were also people that, that we talked to that said, hey, I think you did a great job and handled it. Uh, I, you handled a difficult topic well. Other people had stronger opinions on either side, and that's where I want to start. So which ones, which side do you want to start with? Because we got feedback, uh, strong, good quality feedback from both sides. So take it whichever direction you want. Yeah. um, I mean, I think, you know, I think you said this to me uh, shortly after we, we started getting a few listener notes, which was just like, well, everyone's mad at me, so I assume that means we did something right, or at least we you know, there was a little bit of balance to the coverage. I think, um, I think, you know, the thing that really struck me is what, you know, somebody would, you know, if they were sort of predisposed to agree with something that, that we were about to say, then it was much less likely that they would even like hear the full statement. Whereas if they were predisposed to disagree, they were just like waiting for, you to say something or me to say something that's like, that's not quite right. And then it was like, boom, zing, gotcha. Uh, You said this, but that's not true. And which is, you know, in an issue like this, it is very important to like be very explicit and very specific and say the things that are, you know, as accurate as they are known to be. I think that's definitely important. But I think, you know, for me, the first piece or my first big takeaway in just reading, um, you know, sort of feedback that was maybe more pro-Palestinian versus that, which uh, was pro-Israeli is, you know, just that, that juxtaposition in like, well, you said this and that's wrong, or you said this and, or you didn't emphasize this enough, but, you know, things that were on the other side, it was like, well, we'll just accept that as fact and move on. But in fact, you probably didn't even say that enough. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, totally agree. So I, we kind of joked last episode where Biden was getting heat from every, from both sides. So he was like, must be doing something right. So yeah, I guess 
that, that felt like, yeah, I, I do think we probably got a few things wrong or, I, I, we got criticism from both sides. It makes me feel like a, ooh, at least we set out, you know, the goal we had set out was to try to be as balanced as possible. And I, I feel um, decent about that. Uh, other things that stood out to me with feedback from both sides was both sides, like making sure to emphasize that it's, it's not about race. And because race had been brought into it, you know, kind of across the spectrum, um, and both sides were saying that it's 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 really not about Jews versus Muslims, and it's not about you know white colonizers versus uh, you know Arab natives. And I, I think that was nice to hear across both sides, and just kind of being like, and you said this really nicely. I thought last week where this is you know a government issue, and that we we should be able to criticize the governments or the representatives or the militaries of these of these areas without broadly painting a, a religion or a racial brush a, a, across these things. And unfortunately, whether it's some of the rhetoric uh, or some of like the, the actions that have been happening, whether it's anti-Semitic rhetoric and acts that we've seen um, or, uh, you know, responses, the kind of calling, you know, associating you know, Jews with white people. If a few, uh, few episodes ago we had on our friend Jeff and his brother uh, Jamie is a writer and and wrote a good piece in the Washington Post saying that to call like Jews white and colonizers is 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 really not fair um, given that like skin tone wise racially many of them look no different than you know an Arab Muslim out there and were never like a majority kind of figure in in the Europe in Europe like the colonizers from England or France or Portugal or wherever, which I thought was really good. Um, and on the other side, that it's not, uh, I guess, that to to say that hey, when when we criticize Israel, we're not being anti-Semitic. Like this is not, uh, I'm not for you know attacking Jews or, and it's it's really about the actions of this particular government. So that it was, we got feedback from both sides, really emphasizing that hey, it's not about race and religion, and not that we can ignore those things. But I, I felt good that at least the listeners that we have are all kind of saying it's it's not about that. That's not the you know the, the thing that we should be focused on here. Yeah, and it's and it's funny also that I think some of the criticisms we got from both sides, I felt like I took issue with. Um, I mean, I guess you know maybe I want to start by being clear on my position which maybe I, I wasn't so much is that I, I think the, the crux of the issue is still, or not the crux of the issue, but the, the first issue that needs the most immediate addressing is kind of the humanitarian crisis that is being disproportionately borne by Palestinians. Like that, that's, that is my assessment of what is going on now in, in none of that. Am I saying that I have, a solution um, because a solution will require uh, states, you know, statehood, I think for Palestine um, that is somehow, you know, there with the state of Israel. And if you look at a map that kind of 
you know, draws circles around, well, this is a Palestinian neighborhood and this is an Israeli neighborhood. And um, certainly you can talk about settlement expansion and you can talk about uh, Jewish people being displaced when the British left. You can, uh, like, depending on where you want to go, you can talk about a lot of those things. But for the specific events the last few weeks, I think the humanitarian crisis is maybe, and, and we got, we got a little bit of flack for that is maybe something that we didn't call out. Now on the flip side, the question I think that was posed from us was that, you know, like what, what would you have Israel do? And I think this is one of those interesting situations in that I, I feel like we, we maybe did like talk around um, some solutions in that I think we're both aligned that things like terrorism are not necessarily uh, sort of restricted to certain people and ideologies. Like people gravitate towards terrorism because of desperate circumstances. And, you know, the first thing that I would think of, or, and this is, and this is where it's still, it's still as difficult today as it was two weeks ago to talk about, but, you know, one of the questions was, well, if we give money, Hamas is just going to take it and they're going to take it to, to build tunnels and, and make weapons. And I think that like, Yes, but have we, how much money, like, what have we, have we really invested in terms of technology, in terms of opportunities, in terms of sort of freeing up movement and things like that? Like, how have we really invested in this area such that, you know, turning towards an entity like Hamas, which it's not even really clear the Palestinians are are on on mass doing that, but like, uh, you could you could certainly argue that that they are like the most uh, like collective representative body or or something that is kind of taking action on behalf of of Palestinians in that area. Like how how are we trying to address that issue? I think is is still going to be primary, but underlying all that is a ton of like religious issues. <laughs> Yeah, right. I mean, that's what yeah, I was. I don't. I, I felt even as I was talking, I wasn't doing a good job explaining what because it, we can't ignore like all of the religious and, and racial undertones of all of that. But uh, I was just trying to say that it's not. Yeah, uh, it's you know, it's not trying to say that like Jews and, and Muslims can't live peacefully there, or you know, um, lighter skinned people and darker skinned people can't live peacefully there, uh, and. To criticize Israel is not to criticize all Jews, and to criticize Palestinians is not to criticize all Arabs. And that—that's—it um, was just that—that that seemed to me like a common theme across the feedback we got. Is everyone they were coming at us pro say you weren't pro Israel enough? But hey, I'm not out here trying to criticize all Arab people. Hey, you weren't pro Palestinian enough. I'm not trying to criticize all Jews, which that, that was kind of the point I was trying to make. Uh, but but a few things we did get pushed um, from the more pro Israel side to say like, all right. Agreed, Ricky, that the humanitarian disaster in, in which is overwhelmingly borne by Palestinians is is the major issue here, or or should be at least. But what is Hamas's role in that? Right? Are we going to place a hundred percent of the blame on Israel for the this humanitarian crisis? Or you know, if we're being fair, do we have to step back and say, you know, what's Hamas doing for its people? Are they actually inflicting you know more? 
you know, putting their people in a, in a deeper crisis, whether it's the allocation of how they're spending their money or their, their actions towards Israel. Uh, so that was the push we had gotten in the right. Yeah. Or at least on the pro-Israel side. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which, yeah, depending on, yeah. yeah, I guess you, I guess you would say it was coming from the right, but that, and it, it's, it is an interesting question. I think still at the end of the day, you're talking about two just very different scales of operation, like what Hamas is doing, even the amount of money that they may be able to siphon off from aid. Like it's so small in comparison to, you know, what we talked about as this massive, uh, I mean, for its, for its size, like you said, pound for pound, like the Israeli army and military defense organization is really un- unrivaled. And so then we got a question that, well, you know, that has never mattered. If two sides are n- not matched, then, you know, you don't go about like evening this, the sides. And I think this is where we, we got the sort of the criticism from the other side, which is we didn't talk about how much money the U S has provided over the years um, for, for Israel. And like, does that make the U.S. kind of complicit in what Israel is doing today? And I mean, I, I think, of course, the answer is yes. And then, you know, the question about, well, you know, the U.S. reaction to terrorism has never been like, you know, oh, oh, oh well, like it's it's been to invade Afghanistan and Iraq. And like we do very similar things, you could argue, to what Israel is doing today. The difference is we did it in other countries and not across the the border but i i don't think that the like i don't think mistakes that we have made in the past should dictate how we um how we continue to operate just so that we don't seem hypocritical i i I think we, we can certainly say that like look we didn't actually really ameliorate the situation in afghanistan there's little evidence to say that you know the the presence of terrorists, quote unquote, is lower than it was 12 years ago um, when we entered the country, right? So I think we can also say from experience, and obviously Israel has plenty of experience having been at this for over 70 years, but that this, this tactic isn't working, right? Like occupation is not necessarily making Israel safer, Um potentially just like kicking the can down the road. And I, what I, the way that I think about it as, as well is that like they are in an, in a neighborhood that is, that is hostile to their existence. There's really no way around that, but they have started as you rightly mentioned, you know, through Trump or whatever made some economic arrangements with other Muslim majority countries in their neighborhood. And, and I think, you know, part of that is, is really, is going to be the the way forward Um, far more than any other military solution, because that's, it's, that's just seems untenable. That's well said. I, I let's talk about the neighborhood for a little bit because we, we know from experience that when the United States is in Afghanistan and um, Iraq, yeah, I think I've said this many times before, but it's 
I, I have no you know sympathy for you know, Saddam Hussein and his brothers or or the Taliban that was in charge of Afghanistan previous to the United States uh, you know interventions in those countries. But there's no denying that the United States, having been there for the last 20 years, has destabilized the region in a lot of ways. And, and if you look at what happened, what's been happening in Syria, unfortunately, over the last five years, huge destabilization in the region. And that was another point that was made on like kind of the pro-Palestinian side was that we didn't pay enough attention to just how many Palestinians have been displaced from what they consider their land and are now the burden on other countries in the neighborhood countries like, you know, Lebanon or Jordan or Egypt or, or where have you, uh, that now creates pressure on those countries as well, which contributes like countries that are not necessarily wealthy and are not necessarily doing a great job taking care of their own people are now flooded with hundreds of thousands, if not millions of, of refugees that they now have to deal with. And it continues this destabilization. Like going back to the Syria example, we know that the, the refugee crisis, you know, uh, like two years ago with Syria, it affected the whole world, and not only the Middle East, but stream, they were streaming into into um, like Southern Europe and pushing it into you know really Central Europe and North Africa. And then all of a sudden, there are crises in all of these countries, especially when you know they're not in economically great shape. There's a flood of immigrants it, that creates xenophobia, it creates violence. It's uh, and it's like these things are all really tied together. And I thought that was a really good point that I don't know that I had really considered it. And to be honest, I don't know that I had really known the extent of just how many uh, Palestinians were displaced by that. And I think you did a good job talking about the humanitarian cost of the crisis, but uh, that perhaps certainly on my, on my end hasn't gotten as much attention as it, as it should. Yeah. And, and I think that that is sort of exactly uh, kind of what the pro-Palestinian point was that it's beyond just like these like the the rockets and the return airstrikes are but like a you know a blip you know obviously it gets the international community's attention but people live through this type of environment you know every day year after year and unfortunately most people kind of most people everywhere else go about their daily lives and obviously there are crises all over the the globe but this you know for these people who live this particular one to have all the attention um, during, during fighting is, is great. They can promote potentially their cause, but that, that the extent of this is, is far longer and far further reaching um, than just, you know, what we've seen over the past two weeks. Yeah. And, And things have evolved even in the last two weeks and, you know, knock on wood, it's, you know, the ceasefire has largely held uh, and hopefully there's like more diplomatic processes that are happening and, and investment uh, from not only the United States, but the international community to try to try to uh, repair some of the damage that has been caused uh, over the last month. But uh, as we had foreshadowed a couple of weeks ago, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu looks like he is on his way out um, and it looks like they have Israel has come to be led by this man, Neftali Bennett. Uh, I don't know a ton about him. Uh, he was he served in Israel's government for the last like seven years, I believe, uh, most recently as its defense minister. And as far as I can tell, seems to be to the right of Netanyahu. Uh, so I don't know a, a ton about him yet. I'm sure I we will learn more if, if he ends up uh, leading Israel. Uh, 
but that it certainly will be something to keep an eye on. You know, it's it was it's really kind of fascinating where we had talked about why like Netanyahu potentially would benefit from chaos and violence and if as like a right wing, you know, strong pro-military strength through, through force. Uh, but the person that's going to be elected to replace him is essentially a younger farther right version of himself. Yeah, this is where, uh, you know, having s- struggled so much to just barely understand how the American governmental system works, that you look at something like this and you're just like, I don't, I get nothing. I have no idea what's going on because in order for this guy to basically succeed Netanyahu is they have to create, like, you know, we've talked about those, those ruling coalitions and get people from the far left to the far right. The first Arab party within Israel uh, is going to be part of this coalition and like there's some arrangement that if the coalition sticks together until 2023, that they're going to replace him with the, uh, a more centrist leader. It's like it's so bizarre. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, every once in a while we talk about like how messed up the U.S. system is. And we're like, oh, let, let's look over and other countries have like some different options, maybe do it better. And then you look at some of these and you're like, yeah, I don't, I don't know that it is better. Yeah. Yeah. Different, different, definitely. It, it was it was interesting sure. that Netanyahu has been coming out um, and using very, very similar language. I like I wanted to play like a who said this, um, but I don't have the quote in front of me. But it was essentially like, you know, we're witnessing the biggest like steal of an election in history. This is all, you know, corruption and and whatnot. And and honestly, based on what I'm hearing, like I don't I don't really understand what's going on. Obviously his Likud party has, you know, retained the most seats, but because of the way their system works and the coalition they need to create, they could still be, you know, replaced if they, if they're, if they fail to build a majority coalition. So, I mean, certainly interesting. It feels like it may, it really may be getting taken away from Netanyahu on a technicality. I'm not sure that uh, I'm too upset about that, but certainly worried about um, what the what the next person could bring. Because I, as far as I know, is also someone who is very against any two state solution, especially one that that might cede some part of Jerusalem um, to be not part of Israel, which I. Again, like, you know, we can say all we want that this does not have anything to do with religion. And in many ways, like the, the fighting and the sort of the people who are experiencing the, the aftermath or, you know, all of the, the trauma potentially are not, you know, it's not necessarily one side or, or, you know, religion is not as much of a factor in here, but the solution is going to have to to tackle the religion question. That is for sure. That is for sure. All right. When we come back, we will delve into slightly safer waters and talk about the United States government. Yes, <laughs> for sure. Country roads take me home to the place. So 
one of the things that we have talked about since President Biden was elected was this hope that Washington would return to some semblance of bipartisanship in some areas. President Biden, as we have alluded to numerous times before, has long styled himself as a deal deal maker. He spent 50 years in the Senate. Uh, He certainly speaks quite nostalgically, sometimes too nostalgically uh, about like the good old days in the Senate when people from very different states who had very different views could still get together and and make deals and and get things through the Senate. Um, And that's how he said he was pretty much like, hey, I'm the guy that can really reach across the aisle and make things happen. And over the first few months of his term, that didn't happen. And I've been outspoken on this podcast like, that I've been disappointed by it. His biggest piece of legislation was, you know, the coronavirus relief bill passed back in March. And that was done through budget reconciliation. We've covered all this ground before. Uh, but the latest piece of legislation has been the infrastructure bill. We have talked about that. Uh, President Biden and the administration came forward with our proposal uh, a couple of couple of almost a couple months ago now um, and Republicans came back somewhere in like the 700 billion dollar range and Biden despite some pressure from the more progressive wings of the party said that he was going to give this a, a real bipartisan shot and he has been meeting with um, Shelley Moore Capito who's a Republican senator from West Virginia as you just said between uh, Capito and uh, Senator Manchin, who we'll talk about extensively in this segment, West Virginia punching well above its its weight uh, with two of the most important, like right now, two of the most important senators in D.C. hailing from one of the smallest states in, in the country. So, you know, credit to them, really. Uh, but those talks actually, they've been ongoing for several weeks. But just before we started recording this, we got you know, the messages on our phones that those talks have have fallen apart. And so Democrats are pressing Biden to be like, all right, you tried. Republicans aren't coming to the table. Move on. Republicans, of course, are criticizing Biden for for not really moving and and kind of that this whole thing was a charade and that they're not going to support anything that is is higher than that. All right. Thoughts on on bipartisanship, uh, the the goal of bipartisanship. Where where does that stand in D.C. in your opinion right now? (laughs) Yeah, it's um, it's it's interesting. And I think we'll get into a little bit about like, you know, why it's necessary with the status of the filibuster being the way that it is, although reduced from its previous role, it's still a pretty important tool um, to ensure that you need bipartisanship because the filibuster basically means that you can't vote on any policy measure. So judges and things are now excluded from that list, but any policy measure without at least 60 votes to vote on it. Um, And so without those 60, any, uh, you know, the the legislation can get filibustered, right? So simple as that. And and the, what is the status of bipartisanship? Um, Yeah, it's, I would say it's in a very dire uh, situation. I think perhaps, you know, taking a few steps back, you can talk about whether or not there was ever any real bipartisanship or if or if whether bipartisanship really yields significantly better results um, than essentially, you know, the the jerking back and forth between the parties. Um, You know, you can look at things like the crime bill, the Iraq war that all 
received plenty of bipartisan support. And we look back 20 years and say that those were disastrous. But there is, you know, I think people will still talk about kind of the, the temperature of American politics today, how people talk to each other about political issues without bipartisanship. It is, you know, uh, brothers are enemies here, basically, um, with somebody on the other side being so far apart as to be like diametrically opposed that without any bipartisanship, somebody is going to be devastated in pretty much everything that comes out of government or nothing will come out of government because of the current situation. And and maybe that that's, (laughs) and maybe that that is by design. Yeah, it's, it's hard. I I can really see it both ways, right? Like I've seen and heard a lot from my like more progressive friends being like bipartisanship in some ways makes no sense. Like if, if you or I ever wanted to get things done in our lives, like we would never go to the people that we disagreed with the most to make sure that we could come up with a compromise to, to agree on things. Then again, when we try to get things done in our lives, it's not for us. Like what do you sign up for the government to govern the whole country? Um, and we can go back if you want to trace like the legislative like history or tradition of the filibuster like there's nothing in the constitution that says you need 60 votes or 67 votes like this is something that was invented over time and has been changed over time so there's there are arguments to be made that the filibuster is kind of an anachronism and that the founders never intended the Senate to be deadlocked and frozen and useless like it seems to be or has seemed to have been for large portions of the 21st century. Um, so, I, I mean, I think there's there's fair arguments against the filibuster. Uh, anybody who's listened to this for any period of time knows that I'm very much because I, I just believe kind of like you were alluding to at the end there that bipartisanship is just an important value in, in, in terms of how we're going to govern and, and not just shoving your priorities when you have two years or four years in power down the other side's throats so that they can come back and do the same thing to you. I've lamented the nuclear option that Harry Reid first invoked in 2013 and then Mitch McConnell um, you know, took that next step in 2017. I, I think it's a, just a dangerous path to go down where when I'm in power, I'm going to do anything I can to get my people in place and to get my policies through knowing that a few years later, the other side is going to be in power and just do the same thing. That doesn't feel like an effective way to govern to me. On the other hand, it's not effective to govern when nothing's getting done either. Uh, so I mean, whatever, I can see the frustration from all angles. Uh, it, it, it's, it's frustrating to sit back and, and think that like, we just, we can't get things done. Yeah, definitely. And I think bipartisanship requires a certain amount of like an assumption of like good intent um from the other party and like all right biden came to the table with 2.3 trillion which i think if it's not two two trillion plus these days it's not a it's not a proposal that can come out of the uh that can can come out of the oval office but you know he reduced the number by a trillion to 1.3 i don't know what got cut what made it um but then on the other side, I mean, it got up like maybe another hundred billion. And so, you know, someone, I, I can understand how, at least in this instance, somebody could say, all right, let's abandon it. But the, I think the, 
I think your the important point still stands. Like, yeah, how do we how do we move forward in this situation? Because on the one hand, okay, yeah, you can get rid of the filibuster, um, but you know you'd be very naive to think that the parties are not going to continue to switch hands. Which really means that if it's that easy to pass legislation, it's just legislate overturn two years later, overturn two years later again. Like we've seen it with executive orders, right? Exactly what happens. A president comes in day one, every executive order from the last administration goes right out the window. And that's not a way to do things either. How do you think like senators would campaign if if we knew like as we are now that it's 50-50? Hey, you will let me day one, we're overturning exactly what they just passed, right? I mean, it would be ridiculous. And to some extent, like the more like libertarian side of me is like, there we shouldn't really do anything unless we're getting like huge kind of that everyone can agree on it like if we're if we're passing laws they should be laws that make sense for enough people to agree that we should that we should be able to get beyond 60 easily the fact that we even have to battle in 51 60 might not even be enough like and again i know like practically that doesn't really make any sense but if we really step back and be like, all right, the government should only be passing laws that are absolutely necessary. If they're absolutely necessary, they should get broad support. I mean, that's, that's part of it. But I love that point you made about you. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no. Well, so the broad support thing gets us into a whole nother issue, right? Because largely these infrastructure deals do have broad support, but the problem is now our sort of our system of government, right? We elect individuals to go there and do these things. And unfortunately, most of the individuals we elect are more interested in themselves remaining where they are, if not, you know, going further in their career than they are about like, all right, I might do this because it's for the good of the country, but here's the problem. I'm going to go home and get, you know, crucified by my party. And then that's it. I'm out of the Senate. I'm out of Congress and you'll never hear from me again. But we need, unfortunately, we need people who are willing to do that until we can kind of stem the tide of how our elections run, which is essentially, you know, everything is a litmus test. And if you're agreeing with the other side, you failed the litmus test. So you got to you got to go. I mean, we're, just, we're going back to it. We've been making these points for the entirety of how, how long we're doing voting. this. Let's do it again. Eight months at this point. Like, we, we, we always keep coming back to these same points about how broken the election system is, how that leads to dysfunction in Washington. I agree. But I want to go back to, like, the good faith point that you made earlier, because I think it's crucial. You have to assume that people are coming at it with the best intentions. And unfortunately, we know that there are people on on the wings of both sides. But I think you can point the the finger more fairly at Republicans who have been more obstructionist in a lot of ways uh, when they've been the minority. Uh, but you have to hope uh, and really believe that people are coming at it with the best of intentions. So, you know, Shelly Capito, you mentioned several meetings with her in the Oval Office. They had phone calls. It seemed like he, he really gave her a fair shot. And to her credit, this was the largest for spending infrastructure bill, the Republican party has ever supported. And you can, it's fair to sit there and say, Hey, it's not enough. You haven't like, you haven't come enough to the middle. You weren't really at the table. On the other hand, like she knows that she, she needs to get enough. Like she needs to get 10 Republicans on her side too. And if she, if a trillion dollar bill was just never going to fly with th- that percentage of Republicans. And I, I really feel like she negotiated in good faith too. So it's not that in this p- particular instance, that bipartisanship is dead either because 
the White House said, we're going to turn to this other bipartisan group of senators, uh, many of whom we've mentioned before, but are also working on infrastructure. So uh, Manchin and Romney, we've mentioned ad nauseum, but um, two we probably haven't mentioned enough, Rob Portman, who's a Republican from Ohio, and um, Kirsten Sinema, who is uh, a Democrat from Arizona, who besides Manchin is probably, you know, maybe the second most important Democratic center in Washington right now in terms of being a moderate from a purple state who um, has supported a lot of the administration's proposals, but is not going to vote in the filibuster and is very happy working across the aisle. And so these are the group where I feel like I think it's maybe a group of 20 right now uh, that you hope that these people do seem to be negotiating in good faith and to really want what's best for the country. And is it sad that it's 20 out of 100? Yeah, it is. But it, it gives me hope that we still have at least 10 senators on each side that are willing to really do the hard work to try to get something together. Yeah. And I mean, potentially infrastructure is like bipartisanship's like last hope. Like it is. If you can't do this, can't, what, what are you going to do? Yeah. yeah. Agreed. So let's talk about bipartisanship in the form of, of voting rights. Because as we talked about a, a few episodes ago, um, the quote unquote for the people act, which I believe was um, named uh, like HR one. Was I wrong on that? We got, yeah, we, we got it. One. It's house bill one. Or HR is not house resolution. I thought it was, yeah, but it's, yes, it's not it's just house of representatives like bill. Number. One. Yeah. Great. Boom. I, said, I knew I had it right. See, we're listening out there. People that are giving us feedback. We are listening. Yeah. I caught myself. <laughs> All right. So that was the Pelosi had named it HR one because it was like kind of symbolically the number one priority to get out of the house. It got out of the house and it was, we, we talked about it in depth in our previous episode, so I won't do it again, uh, but it's a sprawling bill designed theoretically to guarantee better access to people um, for voting and to ensure voting rights and to um, expand what I call some of the more liberal policies around voting uh, and to counter, to be fair, like a lot of the more restrictive policies that are that are being implemented in, in states, Georgia, Texas, we, we've talked about all this. Uh, that got to the Senate in in Sunday's in in an article that um, that appeared Sunday. Joe Manchin came out and said not only would he not vote to end the filibuster, he said he would also not vote to support HR uh, one. Uh, that bill is is now, for all intents and purposes, dead uh, because. You, if Manchin's not supporting it, there's just no way the non-Republicans are going to support it. You can't, they couldn't even get to 51 votes if they wanted to. Um, and from what I've heard and what I've read, Manchin's the only one really with like the guts enough to come out and say he's against it. There's like a fair amount of other moderate Democrats who are also against it, but have a hard time kind of coming out in, in fear of the progressive left of if being as vocal as Manchin is and coming out against it. So now leader Schumer is in an interesting position because he's getting a ton of heat from the left to bring this bill onto the floor. It's been not only a campaign promise across, you know, really hundreds of democratic campaigns over the past couple of years, but it's the it's speaker Pelosi. It was her number one priority and she and everyone else saying, bring it to the floor, put it to a vote. He might do that. I mean, it's, it, he's in a, this is where like being the leader of a majority like this is really tricky because on the one hand, he brings it up and it's going to fail. And that's embarrassing and a waste of time. It's a waste of everybody's time to bring this bill. Everyone knows it's not going to pass. But there's the argument, hey, bring it out there, put it to a vote, put everyone on record on it. So that'll be really interesting. Yeah. 
definitely interesting and and a real window into like how Manchin has like carved this role out for himself, right? Because like you said, there are there are definitely Democrats um, in in certain states that are like, I'm not. There's no way I can vote no on this because I will get primaried from the left, and this will be on my record. And honestly, if it, if if Manchin's out here saying no, then I know it's going to fail. So it doesn't matter. I can say yes, like whatever. Um, <laughs> which is which is interesting. I mean, I there are so many provisions in that bill that I'm hugely a fan of like the releasing tax returns and there's, you know, going to be some caps on campaign finances. Like there are so many things that I think are necessary, but uh, I I will also go on record saying it's like over 800 pages. And I think it's absurd that we're when, when we're looking for some way to expand and protect access to voting that we would need a bill uh, that's 800 pages long. And even even if I agree with like a lot of things that are in there, um, it's just I don't these like super packages, which I mean, seem seem to be like the way of like legislation that like we can only get people to vote for one thing once in four years. So like it better have literally every single thing in it Um, seems very just like antithetical to like, how do we do these how do we do like, we have a lot of discrete challenges. Like how do we get them right? And I, and I understand kind of the idea that like we need to take a holistic approach and that, you know, you can't necessarily fix this one thing without fixing that thing. Or like, if you do this without doing that, then potentially you make something worse. And that, that is, that's true. But also like in 800, 800 pages of legislation has untold amount of like, consequences that there's no way that you can account for all of them if you do that in like one big uh in one big stroke so it's yeah it's certainly tough as a progressive person you definitely want to see some of these things enacted but also like i i think i can realistically say that it's i'm i'm not necessarily in favor of trying to do everything in one bill you know or maybe everything in three bills like that I don't think that that makes sense. Yeah. And it's the classic choice that's facing progressives right now, or when the Republicans are in party faces like the far right is like, Hey, do I want to be ideologically pure? Like, are are there things that are in HR one that will probably get cut in a smaller bill that I'd love to see in there? Yeah. But being ideologically pure. Yeah. Maybe that gets you through your primary and gets you reelected but it doesn't get anything done. It doesn't get anything passed. It doesn't address any of the issues that like you want to address. So uh, another bill that's facing the Senate is HR four, which has been named the John Lewis act uh, after the late, the late um, representative. And of course the civil rights icon who just passed last year. Um, And that's a a far narrower bill. And that's the bill that Manchin came out and said, Hey, I'm on board with trying to get this one passed. And it, it will address like a lot of the issues that I think a lot of, uh, a lot of progressives like want want to see happen. So, uh, for example, it would it would kind of resurrect the the Voting Rights Act that was originally passed in, in 1965, I believe. It would put like um, Department of Justice oversight back on voting laws in states with a history of of discrimination against voters, um, and give like muscle to actually enforce uh, 
when they see discrimination uh, in polls or laws or, or any of that, those sorts of things. And Manchin's pretty much saying like, look, this will address a lot of the issues that we're seeing. This will counter a lot of these more restrictive voting laws that we're seeing in Republican state legislatures. Let's try to get this passed. Um, and so on the left, he's facing like, hey, it doesn't go far enough. And quite honestly, I don't know if it's going to pass. Like, I don't know if we're going to get 10 Republicans votes for it. I think zero. <laughs> so Murkowski is the only one that's come out and said she'd do it. And I mean, I, I have hope in the Collinses of the world, the Romneys of the world, that like we might get something there. But I will say this. If you're Schumer, why not put this put this bill out there? You have your 50 you know, Senate votes right here. You know you get all your Democrats. You're going to get at least one Republican. But to vote against this, like – a much narrower bill designed really to make sure that there's not racial discrimination in voting laws. Like that's really what the John Lewis act HR four is trying to do. That I think it, it's a hard spot to put some Republicans who are going to vote against that. You're really kind of laying your cards out here and say, it's not that, Hey, I am like, I am, you can more, more easily vote against HR one and say, Hey, I'm against eliminating all voter ID. I'm against uh, making all dark money, um, disclose their benefits. I'm against the public campaign finance arm. Like I, uh, you can say I'm against those easily. That's why I voted those down to say that I'm against like making sure that states are not racially discriminated against people in, in voting. It, that's a hard thing to vote against in my opinion. I, I mean, I, I would agree. Um, I, I think we all know though, like the same old, like this is, states rights issue uh that i i would still have a hard time seeing enough republicans come out in favor of it because they know what the consequences are yeah which is which is maybe like where this where people's frustrations with joe manchin are right like let's say that this is a bill that theoretically everyone should be on board with we don't have 10 Republicans saying, Hey, how about this bill? All right. Like you guys are proposing this, but this one does a lot of what you're saying. I'm, I'm here on record saying that if you put that on the floor, I'll vote for it. No one's, no one's gonna, no one's gonna do that because, because there's no, definitely no political incentive to make that kind of a gesture. In fact, it's the opposite. It's basically suicide. You're going to get the Matt Gates's and the Taylor Greens. Why are you always so depressing? <laughs> running around your state being like this person has to go. And unfortunately that, that, that's just, yeah. So, I mean, and this is like, so mansion is this like unicorn basically because he is the, this blue, blue Senator and like basically one of the reddest States uh, that we have in this country. And so n- no Democrat is really saying like, you know, well, if we primary him from the left, he like, all right, there goes our seat then. So then what? <laughs> right. Like that's. And so he's like, I'm untouchable on, on the left, which means that I am the only one with, with power here, because like you said, everybody else's decisions are basically foregone conclusions. Once the bill is proposed, if it comes out of the left, you're, you're either you're voting for it or you're voting against it. But he's the only one who's like, my seat is more or less secure secure within my own party, I'm going to constantly have to fight off the Republican challengers, which is why I have to do these things. Yeah. It's a unique position. It's, it's, it's why he's the, the most kind of fascinating of the hundred uh, for these, for over the course of these six months. 
Um, and that's why we keep talking about him. And and, and credit to him for like let like love uh, leveraging it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And and becoming how as powerful as as he is. All right. Uh, when we return, we'll delve into the world of tennis and talk about Naomi Osaka. So for people that don't know, Naomi Osaka, as I mentioned uh, in the lead up to this episode, is the number two ranked tennis player in the world. She is a four-time Grand Slam winner. Um, she came most obviously to, to prominence uh, when she won the 2018 U.S. Open, defeating Serena Williams in what was kind of an infamous match. Um, since then, she's won the U.S. Open again. She's won the Australian Open um, a couple of times as well, and as, as one of the best players in the world. Uh, so this over these course of these two weeks, uh, one of the four Grand Slam tournaments, which is one of the major tournaments in tennis, is taking place uh, in Paris, the French Open. So uh, there's the U.S. Open, the French Open, the Australian Open, and Wimbledon are the four the four real major tournaments. And Naomi Osaka came out before the tournament on Instagram and said that she would not be participating in any post match interviews. She wasn't she wasn't going to be speaking to the media over over the course of the tournament and. I, she got some backlash from that, and she the tournament said that they would fine her as they would any other player, something like fifteen thousand dollars every every match that she wouldn't do it. And there was a lot of outcry from you know the establishment in the tennis world, and from the older guard and older players, and even from some of her peers. With that said, there was also a lot of support from a number of her peers, and, and she followed up with another Instagram post and said, "Hey, the reason I'm doing this isn't." to be disrespectful to the media. Uh, it's not to be disrespectful to the fans, to the, the, the people that come, the people that support me. It's that I have struggled with mental health over the course of these three years. Since I won the US Open, I, I've had issues of depression and anxiety and being in front of the media, to me, it just triggers that anxiety and it, it really bothers me and, and, and hinders me mentally. And I just don't want to deal with that. I am, I'm, I'm okay paying the fines. I just don't want to, to deal with the media uh, aspect of this tournament. More backlash. The, there was a statement that was released by all four Grand Slams, which uh, is extraordinary, saying that they weren't really not going to tolerate players doing this and that these players were subject to escalating fines, including potential other types of penalties. At which point, uh, Naomi Osaka decided that she was going to withdraw from the, the French Open, at which because she is one of the very best, if not the very best women's player in the world, that she was a very strong favorite for. And she decided to to withdraw from the tournament. She, I know she withdrew from the tournament next week and said she's going to step away from tennis for a little bit because you know, she didn't want to be a distraction. Uh, it's a fascinating story. Uh, it's a very like 2021 story in a lot of ways. Uh, and so it's elicited all sorts of reactions many if not most of which I think are really fair so I, I don't know this is it's not a lighter topic because we're talking about mental health and, and the well-being of a young woman and so this isn't any, any sort of way a lighter topic but it's a little different topic in terms of you know, politically it's more it's you know, a sports and societal conversation but I'm curious Ricky like you're you know, you're, you're a tennis player um, I dabble a little bit but curious like your your thoughts on on this whole saga so far yeah yeah it's it's definitely been a really interesting one. Um, I think 
you know, <laughs> calling me a tennis player is definitely a stretch. I played tennis. And I think the one thing that I know, like learned about myself is that in competition, like I just can't, uh, like the focus that's required, all of those, the concentration, just there's so many aspects of the game of tennis that is just, it's you against yourself. Like how well can you do the repetitive motions and move your feet and bend your knees and those types of things. And then when you get off the court, obviously I never had anybody ask me any questions about why I didn't, (laughs) why I didn't win. It was, you know, generally clear. Um, But the, I like, like you were saying, there are just so many takes in both ways. I think you heard, you know, from, from current grand slam champions who are just like, Hey, this is, you know, part of the gig, especially for the women's uh, you know, for the women's side of things, like being able to promote, these name, you know, the quote unquote name brands like a Serena Williams, Naomi Osaka, like some of these other uh, high profile players is really important to the, how they continue to attract fans, how they get sponsors, how they, you know, pay the players, the, the purses that they're able to pay them. So, you know, you totally get the initial reaction from, um, from the major tournaments. I, I mean, I think even the French tournament, initially said like you know we'd love to talk to you like how can we make these things less stressful and it was you know and and potentially completely understandably so like very one-sided in that like look i just i'm this is not for me i'm not gonna do it um it's yeah very so so very 21 right like you, you could you could never envision people talking openly about struggling with mental health in their profession um, in the way that I think so many people do like sports aside uh, work can be stressful and in such a high profile position where, you know, tennis is a sport kind of like golf where you're the only one um, out there. Like, of course you're playing against another player, but in many instances, players beat themselves on forced errors and things like that. And I think a lot of people were pointing to, you know, not really to pick on her, but, but because she's sort of the, the one who's advancing this is that she doesn't perform as well on clay as she does on hard courts. And that's why she's won the U S open and the Australian, but doesn't have Wimbledon and the French. So um, like, is this specific to this tournament? You know, will we see her play at Wimbledon? Is that fair to do? I think, I mean, there, there, there are tons of questions, but the overarching, like, how do we prioritize someone's mental health, but also know that like they are needed for specific things to, you know, quote unquote, do their job. Like her job is unfortunately not just to play tennis because all these other things are required to continue to grow the sport. And there's, as you mentioned, there's a real generation gap that's happening here. So um, Osaka's, she's 23 years old, uh, obviously young uh, and the reaction from her peers who are around her age and younger was overwhelmingly one of support and saying that really proud of uh, Naomi and how courageous she is to, to speak out about this. And as one of the highest profile athletes in the world, really to be so open about anxiety and depression. And uh, that's, it's really, it's, it's important. And we've seen a number of athletes, uh, do that over the, I would say really, really just the last few years and uh, how significant it is not only to 
break down some of the barriers that exist in, in the athletic world, that these are not just superhuman robots that are out there performing these athletic feats. These are real people. And it was so, so taboo to talk about it in the athletic world for so long, but even for anybody out there, for, for young people or, or even older people for that matter, who are struggling with some of these issues and are scared to talk about it or don't, don't seek help um, or don't even acknowledge those problems. So for someone like Osaka to come out and be so open about it, I definitely deserve, she deserves a ton of credit for that. And like I said, for, from her peers and those who are younger, like Coco Goff in particular, who's a 17 year old American phenom was, uh, you know, really kind of lavish praise upon her in, in terms of like being such a leader in this, this space. But like, as you noted, some of the traditional grand slam champions, the old, the, whether they're still currently playing or the older generation was kind of like, look, Everyone goes through anxiety. That's part of the the job that you signed up for as a professional athlete. And you know, if we're being totally honest, Naomi Osaka made thirty seven million dollars last year. She was the highest paid female athlete in the world. She wasn't turning away any of that money. Like that money comes because people are interested in her. And why are they interested in her? Because she plays she plays this sport and she gives the interviews and they want to know more about her and they want her to represent the brand. And it's hard to say that like, Hey, I'm, I'm making these millions of dollars and I have, I have this wonderful job. And then I want to use my platform to benefit me. But then when it doesn't really work for me, like, I'm not going to do the other things that I don't really want to do. Like there's not, I don't know that there's any job in the world. You can say, I'm just going to do what I want to do here and not the things that I want to do. And for people out there who live who don't make anywhere close, who couldn't imagine making $37 million a year for her to complain about like the anxiety she faces kind of like, like, mm, do you really know what anxiety is? And so that's the kind of the balance there, because there's no denying that you can be super rich and super famous and still have serious mental health issues like that. These are not mutually exclusive things, but I think it's really difficult for most people in the world to look at an athlete like Naomi Osaka, who's enjoyed the the fame and the trappings of success like she has to then be like, well, I, I actually don't want to do that part of the job. And, I, and so that's where you see the, the tension and the reactions. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, and it's one of those things where it's like, there's again, not potentially just not like that clear answer. Unfortunately, she's not really proposing any solutions and how she can, you know, be interviewed in a way that uh, respects her kind of her mental health and um, but still gives the people the access that, that really helps grow, you know, women's tennis, uh, as a, as a whole. I mean, uh, Serena, Serena Williams has been, um, kind of the dominant figure on the women's tennis side for so long, but it's, you know, she, she's, she's already out and, and they're looking for new heroes and Naomi Osaka is certainly one of them. I mean, she just got incredible power on the court and then she's also got, um, you know, she's, she has been active on social media through the black lives matter protest. She's, you know, worn uh face masks that, um, have political or, you know, social messages on them. Um, so, I mean, I don't know, I guess, you know, long story short, I think a, a lot of people are kind of dubbing her this next, um, person to take over, but that comes with like a lot of media attention. And so like, how do we, you know, I mean, she she gives a lot to the sport, and as you were right to point out, she gets a lot from the sport too. And so there's that tension moving forward, right? 
and so for me, if she, I have, she has every right, and I respect her withdrawing from the tournament. If she, and if she wants to skip Wimbledon and take the summer off and and get her mental health right, I, that that's great. I hope that she does that. Uh, and if she wants to come back and be the standard bearer for the sport and reap all the benefits that come with that, that's great too. I love watching her play. Like I, I am a big fan of hers as a tennis player and as a person, fairly. Uh, but. I, I have a problem if you're going to come and take all the benefits that you want and not do the things that you you don't want to do. To me, that that seems disrespectful to the everyone else that is involved in this game, from the organizers to the fans to the other players, um, because you do have a responsibility. Your job is not just to go out and hit a ball for two hours. Like there there, there are other parts of the job that allow you to reap the benefits that you do. So hey, if you want to step away, great. You want to come back and do all the things? Great. I'll support you either way. Um, the, the in-between of like, I'm just going to use this for my benefit and not do the rest of the job that I don't like. I'm not going to be here for that. Does she have a point though? And I, I think I largely agree with what you're saying. Does she have a point though in saying that the way that kind of the, the you know, I've always had an issue with like when somebody loses like there's like an interviewer running up to them and basically being like, you know, how, why'd you lose? <laughs> like, what did you do? And like, is, is there something to be said for, or, you know, does that relationship between media and the players need to be reexamined at all? Like, is there something like, is there a compromise to find here? I don't doubt that there is, as you noted earlier, the organizers, whether in good faith or not had sought to, to try to find some sort of compromise and she just wasn't down for that. Um, I would be curious to hear what she thought a, a fair compromise was. Uh, I, I'm not, I'm not sure what it was, uh, what it is. Maybe instead of facing a room full of reporters that are shouting questions at you and are potentially repeating similar questions over and over, then maybe it's just, Hey, I'm, I would be available for a one-on-one session for five minutes after my match or something like that. Um, or maybe there's, there's you know, one reporter, like an AP reporter, right? like a pool re- reporter from, the Americas and from Europe and, and wherever. Uh, certainly, I, I don't think it's a bad thing, as we've said repeatedly, to to reexamine everything that we do and that the relationship that exi- existed between tennis players and athletes and media uh, should be given, give, like, reexamined and, and given another look at. Uh, and if ultimately, like, she's the driver for that change to make a, a number of athletes, including herself, feel more comfortable in the situation, that would be great. Uh, and again, I'm, I'm putting a lot of pressure on her and maybe we both are of like, hey, I want you to do this, right? Like, I don't want you to just, I want you to propose changes and fix the problems that are in the sport, right? Like, that's not necessarily her job, but um, if it, you, you, I guess it, I do start like saying, hey, I'm just not going to, uh, I'm just not going to do it at all. Like, yeah, I, would, I prefer people to be solution oriented. Wouldn't we all? <laughs> yeah, What's we the would. solution for getting us to figure out how to record more <laughs> this summer <laughs> yeah if anybody has any ideas on that come at us we'll give some feedback on that yeah. this All is right. one of the problems is that ricky is too busy and too popular as you might be able to hear repeatedly when he gets phone calls in the middle of episodes yeah it's my dad he, he wants to know what i ate for dinner big supporter of the podcast though <laughs> indeed all right man uh it's been a uh it's been another Another fun one. Hopefully I will talk to you soon. Yeah, indeed. See you, buddy. See you.
We'd stay up all night on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads, running around till we forget where it was we began Some mornings you were away, some morning left your ego bruised But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find In a case of lion's hands, folks of different minds Because even though it did not share Pains we share that American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Learn the hard way But to those who would die upon that hill Quiet truth is better Than a rain Somewhere along the line We seem to have forgotten Values sometimes being wrong. Some mornings you away, some morning let your ego bruise. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. And folks of different minds, because though we didn't share opinions, we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments. And an early morning bus I need an early morning bus There's hope behind the bluster Cause the old Main Street may not sell It's full of folks just like you and me When we have trouble seeing The human for the politics It's time to find a better way to disagree Some days you win, some days you leave your ego through. But what I wouldn't give for hope I used to find and chase the lion's head. Folks of different minds, because though we did not share opinions, we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments and an early morning buzz. What I wouldn't give for. The hope I used to find in a case of lion's head Folks are different minds Because though we did not share opinions We share that American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz